Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. And I hope that you all find a Bible on an app or in your hands so that you can follow along today. If you're new to the Bible, just open up to the table of contents and you can find the page number for the book of Jeremiah. And we'll, we'll be in chapter 29 today. I'm going to read the first seven verses. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, they had all departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Japhon, and, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Father, we ask once again that you condescend to us, that you stoop down to our own level, so that we might understand your truth, so that we might know your mind, your ways, your heart. Reveal Christ to us this morning through these words. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in the middle of a series on prayer called Let Us Pray, and I'll be straight up. The idea of the series is simply this, that we often, too often pray with our heads looking at our own spiritual belly buttons, our heads, our eyes focused on our own needs, our own desires, our own wants and cares, and we so often forget the horizon of God's activity in this world. And so what we're asking you is that, first, that you pray more often, that we become a people of prayer. Secondly, as you pray, that you lift your head up off of your, your own needs, which are good to pray for, we're commanded to pray for them, but that's not all. We lift our head up and we see what God is doing in the world. So week one, we talked about praying for the lost, praying for those who are trapped in the kingdom of darkness and they need to be freed. And their freedom only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, last week we prayed that the saints would be edified. That those who are Christians would grow and would be kept and would be sanctified in truth. Today we're looking at Baltimore City. We're asking you this morning to lift up your heads during your prayer times whether that's in a small group or whether that's on your own time before God and that you would see 
Baltimore City around you and that you would pray for the good of the city. So let's begin by first talking a little bit about Charm City. 629,000 residents live in Charm City. In the metro area, there are 840,000 residents. Broadly speaking, in the region, there are 2.7 million people that live around here. Now, according to some estimates, the way that questions are answered on the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, whether or not Christ is your only hope in salvation, it is estimated, meaning it's possible, that 90% of the people in our region are lost. Meaning 90% answer Jesus and something else in order uh, to stand before God. That means that the vast majority of the people that you encounter in this city are destined for hell. It means that many of the people that you live next to, work with, are separated from a holy God and will spend eternity disconnected and apart from God and His goodness. 70% of Baltimore's residents drop out of high school between the grades of 9 and 10, 9th and 10th grade. 40% of children in the city live in generational poverty, meaning their parents were poor, their grandparents were poor, and their great-grandparents were poor, etc. Generational poverty. Many children are not sure what they will eat for dinner. 70,000 known heroin addicts in the city, meaning there are 70,000 documented heroin addicts in Baltimore City. According to some estimates, that is a greater number than, than the number of evangelical Christians in Baltimore City. Baltimore is, of course, a national leader in murders, rapes, and thefts, affectionately or non-affectionately referred to as Bulletmore by some, Bloodymore, Murderland. Today, I'm going to ask you to pray for Baltimore. I'm going to ask you to pray for the good of Baltimore City. If you're not visiting with us, that means you live here. You live in this city. This is the home that God has, at least for this season of your life, if not for your entire life, brought you to. Now, you might not like Baltimore, all right? You may have been born and raised here, and you just wish you could get out. Or maybe you're passing through. You're getting an education. You're working a job. And you're taking advantage of the restaurants on Charles Street and the pubs here and there. But the reality is, is you could care less about Baltimore City. You've got your eyes set on another destination. Friends, God has you in this moment in Baltimore City. Therefore, according to my theology, you should love Baltimore City. Because God loves Baltimore City. You know you can like someone but not love, or you can love someone but not always like them? All right, 
however you've got to slice this pie. You are commanded to care for the city in which we live, the city in which you currently call home. So today I'm going to ask you to pray, and I'm going to ask you to seek the good of this city. Now, with that said, we should start with the first question as to why. Why should we pray for Baltimore City? Why should we seek the good of Baltimore City? Well, if you look at verse 7 in our text today of Jeremiah chapter, chapter 21, the Israelites here are told something that is shocking, but seek, he says, the welfare of the city where I have sent you into, everybody say, exile. Seek the welfare of the city, Israelites, where I have sent you into exile. Now, we are picking up here in the middle of a story. So to understand what's happening here in this text, we need to understand the story, the bigger picture as to what's going on. So, once there was a God who revealed himself to a man named Abram. And God made a covenant with Abram, and he said, through your seed, I will bless the entire world. And God showed Abraham a land, a physical land. And he said, this land I will give to the people that come through you. Now, as we know, if you know anything about the Bible, Abram has a son, and then his name is changed to Abraham, has a son, a people then grow from his seed. All right, he now has a, f- a huge family that's developing in Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt. And where is he now taking them to? The promised land. Now, there's also a covenant that God makes with these people while they're in the wilderness. He gives them the law, seen mostly in the Ten Commandments, or it's summed up in the Ten Commandments. The covenant is this. Be obedient to the law. The blessing will be the land. Be obedient to the law and you will inherit the promised land. The curse, disobey the law, turn to other gods, worship other gods, and you will be removed from the land. All right? Are you tracking with me here? I need you to stay with me, all right? This is all very important. Jeremiah, in this moment, is raised up uh, at a very crucial, uh, during a very crucial season of Israel's life. In this moment, Israel, well actually, I'll show you, go to chapter 1, verse 16, and I will declare, God says, my judgments against them. So God right now is judging His people for all of their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods. So Israel has been enjoying life in the promised land. They have turned away from the one true God. They have not observed the covenant. They have, they have broken the covenant. They are not observing Sabbath, etc. And God says, I am now removing you from the land. So Jeremiah's very tough job, not, like no preacher would want this job, Jeremiah comes with a message of doom to the people of God. And as Babylon, the evil, wicked empire of Babylon to the north, sweeps down into the promised land 
and takes the people out of the promised land as now exiles into the land of Babylon, Jeremiah is tasked with the job to tell the people that this is all God's doing. The reason Babylon has swept through and has captured us and has now taken us as exiles into their land is because God, Jeremiah says, is using Babylon as his arm of judgment against you for forsaking the law and breaking the covenant. We see in Psalm 137 a song of Israel while they were exiles in Babylon. If I was a blues musician, I would pick up a bass guitar right now. And if I was a great singer, I would sing this psalm. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, the promised land. There on the poplars we hung our harps For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Exiles. Sojourners. In a strange land. Look at verse 1 of our text. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem. So Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem, writing this letter to the surviving elders of the exiles, the priests, the prophets, and all the people that were exiled. Verse 2, this is after the king's gone, the queen mother's gone, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, they're all gone. So Jerusalem has been hollowed out. And there Jeremiah writes a very difficult word to the people that are in exile. Now, here is the interesting piece of Jeremiah, the book as a whole. False prophets in this book speak words of comfort. False prophets come along with words of comfort for the people. So there's a prophet named Hananiah that comes along. And he looks at the people and he says, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Everybody stop freaking out. God is a good God. And He hasn't forgotten you. This isn't God's doing. This isn't what, God didn't bring this disaster upon us. And he says, God would never allow us to remain like this, but we are God's people. You are the promised seed of Abraham, and God will quickly restore your fortunes. God will soon bring us back into the land. So be comforted. Don't, don't make a home there, and this isn't, this isn't your home. Don't build a house. Don't, don't get settled in. Just, just kind of hunker down and wait, because God is bringing you back to the promised land. After this false prophet died, Jeremiah wrote this letter. And in contrast with the word of comfort that came from the false prophet saying, hey, this is temporary, God's quickly bringing you home, Jeremiah writes verse 5. He says, build houses and live there. Build some houses. Like, you're going to be there for a minute. 
70 years to be exact, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your kids. You notice there's two, three generations right there that he just mentions. They're going to be there for a little while. He's saying, look, those of you who are in exile, you are going to remain as exiles for a while. The duty of Israel was in this moment to just simply accept the discipline of the Lord. The duty of Israel was to say, okay, we accept. We are not living in the land and we won't be there for a a few generations. So let's just remain where we're at. Now, as we consider Baltimore City this morning, and as we think about praying for the good of Baltimore City and seeking the good of Baltimore City, two truths that we must keep in mind. As we zoom from, what, a couple thousand years ago here into, uh, into today's life, we remember these two truths. Number one, we too are exiles. You are an exile, a foreigner. In John chapter 17, we talked about this last week, Jesus makes it very clear in His prayer that we are, are, uh, we belong to another kingdom, all right? We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, yet we are left here in this land. Jess and I, a couple years ago, were driving one of our old decrepit cars that we had, um, Every car we've ever owned, up until we bought a car from the Pustrowskis, actually, was a, an old and decrepit car. And we were trying to drive a six-hour short jaunt to Ohio, and we got about three hours in, and the car broke down, all right? Now remember, Ohio is our destination. We were hoping to be there for dinner that evening. We want to relax and begin our exotic vacation in Akron, Ohio for an entire week. And here we find ourselves in Breezewood, Pennsylvania. So we try to get the car working. We we took it to a gas station, on the phone with trying to find a mechanic. Everybody's closed. Nobody can come work on it. You know the story. A couple hours goes by, the car is still sitting there. Problems. It's not running. Eight, nine o'clock, rolls around, and we begin to realize we're going to be here for a little while. We're not making it to Ohio tonight. My mom's meal is going to be put into the fridge, and I'll eat it another time. So, we got a hotel, settled in, and we made a night of... Breezewood, Pennsylvania. There's this moment in which, uh, as exiles, when you're, you're, you're passing through, you have a destination in mind. This is where we're going. This is where, we're, this is where we want to be. And then there's this realization that comes, but we're not going to be there for a while. 
There's a sense in which, for now in this season, we are left as exiles here. Number one, we are exiles. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So there you go. There you go. All right? God Himself called you an exile, not just me. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from sin. If you are a Christian, you are fundamentally different from your non-Christian peers around you. In this sense, your citizenship is elsewhere. Your citizenship is not this world, but your citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And you are an exile, a foreigner, a sojourner in this earth. Truth number one. Truth number two is this. While we are left here, Jesus commanded us, didn't just simply give us advice, but He commanded us to be salt and light in this world. Live peaceably among all men. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all of the people, for the kings and those who are in high positions, so that we might lead a peaceful and quiet, dignified life. Listen, we are commanded as exiles in this world and in particular in this city to pray for the good of the city. We are commanded to find a hotel and settle in. You're going to be here for a little while. Let's talk about our city a little bit more. Let's, let's zoom in. Here we are sitting in a school on Utah Place. Utah Place historically exists as a divide between communities, between people groups, between races. Historically, the Jewish community was not allowed to own a house east of Utah. There was a, a neighborhood association that was formed to keep the Jews out. As Jews moved out of the neighborhood and African Americans moved into the neighborhood, well now African Americans were not allowed to own a home east of Utah. African Americans were allowed to own homes a certain number of blocks west of Utah. For years, the neighborhoods thrived. A couple of weeks ago, we heard about how Pennsylvania Avenue was once the, the hub of entertainment for Cab Calloway and Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. But as the crack and heroin epidemic took place, middle classes of all races moved out of the city. Now, strangely enough, divides remained. So west of Utah, for years, was hollowed out with rentals, drug addiction, a couple folks hanging on, trying to revitalize, trying to do something in the community. Man, my neighbor, by the way, she's wonderful, and she's been in our neighborhood for about 150 years. <laughs> she is the rock. When you go up and down my block, 1500 block of McCullough Street. It's beautiful because she has lived there for 100, I think it was 49 years. 149 years. (laughs) 
But historically, these, these divisions continue to exist. Racism continued to be prevalent. Classism, even more prevalent. Economic divides were great. Drug trade is fine as long as it's on the other side of the street, you know, that sort of thing. As long as it's pushed to where the poor people are, that's fine. As long as we don't see what's happening in our own backyards. Friends, I paint this picture just to simply say this is the city in which we live. This is the neighborhood in which we live. God has called the Garden Church to be a church of this area. To be a light, salt and light of people in this area. Listen, if the gospel unites us with God, then the gospel also unites us with those others who are united with God, correct? Meaning with one another. So what greater expression of the people of God, what greater expression of the gospel than to display that right here in the midst of all this historic tension? Now, friends, listen, we are exiles, yet we are called to live in the city in which we are called. We are not called to simply hunker down and say, I've got to get on, I've got to move on with my life, I've got my eyes set somewhere else. We're not called to say, well, Jesus saved my soul and I'm going to heaven and so therefore I'm going to interact with the world as little as possible until I die and go to heaven. But we are called to be salt and light in Maryland, in the region, in the city, and in particular in this neighborhood. Salt and light. And then verse 7 comes along with incredible weight. So not only are God's people, when they're in exile in Babylon, not only are they called to exist and live in the city and make it their home, but secondly, we see something quite shocking. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare or the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Modern-day Jewish scholars write that this line was intended to be shocking. You see, it would have made sense if Jeremiah here said, seek the welfare of Jerusalem. Seek the goodness of Jerusalem. Seek the peace of Jerusalem. But Babylon is not Jerusalem. Babylon is, is the evil empire that has taken us out of our homeland. It has taken us away from God's promised land. It's Jerusalem that is to be seen as the place of peace, not Babylon. God's blessings are to fall on Jerusalem, not Babylon. The peace of God is to be seen in Jerusalem, not Babylon. The good things of God are to be experienced in Jerusalem, not Babylon. The glory of God is to be seen in Jerusalem and not Babylon. And so in this very shocking way, Jeremiah writes, Seek the good of the city into which I have sent you into exile. Seek the good of the city 
that you find yourself in. Now, while this would have been shocking, it's not contrary to God's character. Even in the calling of Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God says, In you all of the families of earth will be blessed. From the very beginning, with a careful reading, we see that the, the covenant that was made with Abram and his family was not just about Abram and his family. But God was desiring to bring a blessing to all the people. So here, Jeremiah clearly writes in, character, in the character of God, seek the good, the welfare of the city. Now, that word welfare in the Hebrew is the word shalom. Everybody say shalom. Shalom is a greeting. Did you know that? I, just, I feel like you just greeted me. But shalom is much more than a greeting. Seek the shalom of the city. The word shalom uh, is often translated what? Peace, exactly. Here it's translated welfare. Uh, one theologian says this, it's, it's sh- shalom is much bigger than peace. You know, our word peace today, it's, we would sort of define that uh, merely um, an uh, absence of conflict, all right? One theologian says that shalom is defined not merely as the absence of turmoil, but also the notion of a positive blessing. Shalom has interpersonal ramifications. Shalom has to do with safety. Shalom has to do with completeness. Shalom has to do with fullness. Now there are two realities to the word shalom, or to the concept of shalom. There is a vertical reality and there is a horizontal reality. First, the horizontal. Man between man. Shalom is about humans being reconciled with other human beings. Seeking the welfare, seeking the good of the city means that you are seeking reconciliation between people. Now, every once in a while, I pull out the letter to Diognetus. It's an old letter written to the, uh, about the early Christians. It was one of the first descriptions that we can find of what the early Christians were like. And every once in a while, I pull it out, and I'll reference it here at the church. So if you've been here for any amount of time, you've probably, probably heard me reference the letter to Diognetus. Let me read a portion of this letter so that you can see a glimpse into the historic reality of our Christian faith and how Christians have always been about this horizontal uh, reality of shalom, reconciling relationships between humans. This is, this is a description written about the early Christians to a skeptic. They're trying to understand what this new thing is. Who are these people that are following this Jesus? This is the description of them. Listen. He says, For the Christians are distinguished from, from other men, uh, neither by country nor by language nor the customs which they observe, for they neither inhabit cities of their own, so they're not, listen, going off outside of Babylon and building their own little enclaves, nor do they employ a a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines, but... 
inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according, to the, uh, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and the following, cu- following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary product, they display to us their wonderful and confessingly striking method of life. Look at this line. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their own native country, and every land of their birth as land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, and they do not destroy their offspring, which was pretty remarkable in that day and age. They have a common table, look at this, but not a common bed. One of the things that made them stick out was that they would share their table, which which many would not share, but they would never share their beds, which everyone would share. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in, every, in their very uh, dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. These strange Christians, they not only live, they, not only, they weren't known just for simply existing and moving into the neighborhood, quote-unquote. But what, what made them stand out was this remarkable desire to love others. They're blessed, or they bless even though they're, they're reviled. They do good even though they're hated. While they don't share their beds, they share their tables, and they give freely to all who need. Guys, if you are a Christian, uh, these, these are some of our ancestors right here. These, this is, these are our roots. This is the line in which we come from. Shalom has this horizontal reality in which humans are reconciled with humans, meaning citizens are employed, meaning there, there are people who are working honest jobs and they're, they're making money so they can buy food for their family. It means that some uh, executives would intentionally take a smaller salary so they can increase the wages of those who are doing most of the work. This horizontal reality of shalom has to do with Safety. No one's taking up arms against one another. We're not pulling out our guns. 
This horizontal reality would look like hustlers who are converted and they become preachers. Christians are a people who always go into the darkest places. Meaning, Christians are a people who, we we look at a city and we say, okay, where are the darkest places in that city? Let's go there. Or we live in our neighborhood and we say, where are the darkest places? Which one of these homes are the darkest homes on this block? Let's go there. Let's invite them into our home. Now, we are not a church with a ton of programs, all right? We don't do a a lot of uh, programmatic stuff in the community, partly because of resources and the reality of needing volunteers for all of that. The other piece is this. A lot of times you can throw a program at something and give something that, that people can do and it makes them feel good about themselves, and they go home and they continue to uh, to, to, to not love their neighbors. But what we do have in our church are people who are transformed by the gospel. We are a church that believes that our job is to form Christians who will be about this, this horizontal reality of shalom, that will seek the reconciliation, the restored relationships be- between man and man. So, for instance, we had, have one church member who uh, literally used his own money to fly an addict home. He bought plane tickets for an addict, put him on a plane, and flew him home to Col- Colorado. Another one of our members volunteers here at this school to give children recess. The, the children would not have resor- recess if it wasn't for this person giving of his time every day to come here and spend with the kids. Other other people in our church, they spend time playing with kids, playing football, hanging out. Many, many, many people in this church are getting to know their neighbors and having people over for dinner. Some of you are on associations, neighborhood associations, seeking the good in your your neighborhood. Others are part of uh, boards of of nonprofit organizations. That's sort of macro-level stuff. Then there's this this micro-scale in which I mean, we, we are just all simply called to be peacemakers. I mean, you don't have to simply do anything radical. You don't have to do anything that's like crazy in order to uh, find yourself in a conversation with someone in which you can make peace and help that individual make peace with another individual. All right? So, horizontal reality of shalom. We are to be about and pray for the good of this city in praying for reconciliation between human beings in blo- on blocks and in neighborhoods and in the city. The second reality of the word shalom is the vertical reality, all right? So welfare is a secular word. Peace, is a, it's a secular word, all right? So meaning you don't have to be a, uh, somebody that's religious to use these terms. We're just, we're talking about secular things often. When we talk about welfare, we talk about peace, seeking peace. Shalom is a thick word, Shalom is a word that, that has to do with this, these horizontal realities, but it also has to do with these vertical realities, the reality of humans and God. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where it says, in you all the families of earth will be blessed, that's not just talking about social programs. That's not just talking about a mentoring program or a neighborhood being turned around. In you, all of the families on earth will be blessed is talking primarily about the Christ. 
the one who is coming into this world to do the work of reconciliation, the biggest issue that we have, the biggest issue that everybody in Baltimore City faces, and that is the disconnect between them and God. The reality that they find themselves, and maybe some of you, find yourself as an enemy of God. Shalom is about the reconciliation of that relationship. That we see individuals reconciled with God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, as we are called here sojourners and as we're called exiles, he says, I urge you, you exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to keep your conscience among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and, here's the key word, glorify God. You see, the end result, the hope of of these horizontal realities is that they might see our good deeds, it might commend the gospel that is preached to them, and they might glorify God. Shalom is not just simply about reconciliation between humans. We could do all sorts of good work in the neighborhood. We could do all all sorts of things in the city as a whole. I mean, Baltimore City could become this amazing city which everybody wants to come and everybody's bringing their money and they're buying condos and there's, there's no problems and there's no drugs in the neighborhoods and, and every, all of these boarded up houses, they're all rebuilt and they're beautiful, all right? And, and maybe even affordable. So like and those, those who were poor, they've got jobs now and they're buying these. We, like there could be some remarkable things happen in this city uh, and we could, we could celebrate that. But here's the reality. There could be remarkable things happening in the city. Baltimore could be quote unquote changed and everyone could still die and go to hell. For what purpose? For what purpose does change come? You see, friends, as a church, we're not just simply trying to change neighborhoods for the sake of change. We're trying to bring about change so that enemies of God might be reconciled with God. So there there might be restored relationships between God and humans. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Charles Spurgeon said that earlier this week. That reminds me, earlier this week, Montreal quoted Charles Spurgeon. Can I tell you the story? Montreal and I um, had an opportunity to have a conversation with one of our neighborhood hustlers, all right? We were talking about drug trade. We were talking about all sorts of things. This is what Montreal said, all right? He, qu- he, he paraphrased Spurgeon. I don't know if you realize you did this. Montreal said, um, he said, you can live a life that is leading to your ultimate destruction, but you're going to have to jump over us to get there. Friends, is that your heart in this city? Do you realize that the, your, your coworkers, your na- many of them, are heading to an eternal separation from God. Their eternal destination is hell. Is your heartbeat, look, you might end up in hell, but you will have to jump over me to get there. Because I am salt and light. 
a person of God that God has strategically placed into this city so that people might see Christ and they might know that they no longer have to remain as enemies of God, but that God through Christ, the blood of Christ shed on Calvary, has offered them forgiveness of sins and a reconciled relationship so that they might have real peace and they might have real hope. Do you have that resolve? Friends, are you a missionary in this city? Do you wake up in the morning and, 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 and ask God, send someone my way that I might be in a conversation with, that I might share the gospel with? Send someone my way. Who have you shared the gospel with in the last week? Who have you shared the gospel with in the last month? Who have you shared the gospel with in the last year or two years? Friends, how long will we exist in this city and not be about shalom? Not be about this reconciled relationships, not just mano y mano, but man and God. All right, I don't want to make you feel bad for not sharing the gospel. That's not my intent. My intent is to inspire and motivate you to be a person of salt and light in the city. Let me give you a handle. All right, let me give you something to grab onto. Three things. Number one, live intentionally. Live intentionally in this city. Some of you need to move into the neighborhood. Some of you just need to live intentionally where you already are in, your, in, in the neighborhood you live in. But live intentionally, all right? Where am I living and how am I going to live intentionally in this city to, to be about uh, the, the glory of God? Secondly, build relationships. Build relationships. My extroverted friends, do not allow your extroversion to create a whole bunch of shallow relationships. Go deep with people. Look people in the eyes and listen to them. Hear their story. My introverted friends, don't allow your introversion to be an excuse for not building relationships in the city. Build relationships. Connect with people. Have neighbors over for dinner. Uh, you're sitting on the light rail and somebody's sitting next to you. Do you know that God is an intentional God? You think God put this person next to you uh, for no reason? You know, it's, I got on the light rail a couple weeks ago and a man sat down next to me. Uh, here, to, to, be, to be real, I didn't feel like talking to him. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just want to be in my zone. But then it was as if the Holy Spirit of God reminded me, Joel, I would not have brought this man to sit down next to you if I didn't want you to share the gospel with him. For what purpose did God bring this person into my life? So we are intentional. We recognize God is intentional. So we build relationships. We speak. And then third, speak the gospel. All right? If you don't know the gospel, if you don't know how to speak the gospel, my goodness, see me afterward. The gospel is this, a just and holy God called us to be holy, 
along with Him to, to reflect His glory, yet we, ha- we are sinners. We are broken from that. God's wrath is against us. But through Christ, we have redemption. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. He died a death in your place and took the judgment of God for you. And all who trust in Him are forgiven, forgiven of their sins. Share the gospel with people. How often do we say, I'm going to share the gospel with them, but the relationship isn't yet there. I can't do it yet. Well, the relationship isn't there because they're still disconnected from Christ. Listen, the gospel is our relationship building thing that we do as believers. We speak the gospel, and here's the reality, the truths of the gospel being declared have the power to convict and to convert, to trust the gospel. Friends, you are residents of Baltimore City. Let us lift up our heads in our praying. Take our eyes off of our own needs and let us see the city. You might love Baltimore City. You might not really like Baltimore City. But this is where God has us. And so let's love the city through Christ. Let's pray for the good of Baltimore City. And let's seek it. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to enter into the Word. We thank You for this Word that You gave through Jeremiah to the people that were in exile. And may we be a people who uh, uh, reflect these these, uh, same characteristics as Your people here on this earth. may, May we live here in this land of exile. And, but may we not just exist, may we be a people who seeks and prays for the good of the city around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.